From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, June 6th. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. is reluctant to intervene in Syria, but some say it is intervening already. Washington is providing assistance to the opposition, and it's helping Saudi Arabia, which has promised money and arms, get those arms to the right people. If you wanted to put it very crudely, you could say it's regime change through civil war. And later, Google takes on state-sponsored spying. Activists in oppressive regimes are at particular risk, and I think that Google kind of wants to be seen as doing its part to protect them. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The United States today called for maximum financial pressure on Syria. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner said tougher economic sanctions can help hasten the day that the regime of President Bashar al-Assad leaves power. While that is an American objective for Assad to step aside, President Obama has resisted calls for a Libya-style intervention in Syria. As you'll recall, that involved American and NATO planes bombing targets inside Libya. Joshua Landis argues against such an intervention. He directs a Middle Eastern Studies program at the University of Oklahoma, and he writes about the need to stay out of Syria in the current edition of Foreign Policy magazine. There are many people now advocating the United States step in and carry out a sort of Libya-style regime change in which they bomb the presidential palace, military implantations, and destroy the Syrian military. The trouble with that is that if America breaks it, they're going to own it. The chances of something wrong going on in Syria are fairly high. It's a poor country. If Syria were to fall apart, who would be responsible? That's the question. And in the case of Syria, a country that's in a civil war, essentially, that many people say needs a new direction. And we've obviously seen now the horrific pictures of the children killed in Hula. Morally, why shouldn't there be regime change in Syria? About 13,000 Syrians have been killed in the last 14 months, according to UN statistics. And um, in invading Iraq, a country the same size, same population, we killed that many in one month. And if this is about saving lives, we have to figure out what's likely to happen if we destroy this regime. UN Special Envoy to Syria, Kofi Annan, is expected to present uh, to the UN Security Council this week a new plan for Syria. It reportedly would be a sort of roadmap for a political transition that would be negotiated through a contact group that would include Russia and Iran. Does that have much hope? This is dependent on the Russians negotiating their way out of um, Syria. And there is hope that the Russians see that the Syrian government can't hang on and that they will, in a sense, try to get something for their investment in Syria by having some input in the next leadership. You know, I don't know if that's likely to happen. I think the Russians haven't given up on Syria yet. Well, the, the Americans, of course, are trying to uh, float this idea right now that the Russians will abandon it. But I'm not sure they, they are ready to do that yet, which means that 
that Syria would be in for a much longer civil war. Joshua, you are deeply steeped in Syria, not only through your scholarship and research. Your your wife is Syrian and is uh, from the same minority ethnicity as the Assad regime, the Alawites. Are the Alawites determined to stay the course? Yes, they are. They have their backs to the wall. They believe that um, when this regime comes down, they are going to be cast down to the bottom of society and that they will be purged from government, which is probably correct. Many believe that there could be some form of revenge or even ethnic cleansing. They have used their connections with this regime in order to uh, get employment. And they're going to be stripped of their jobs. And the revolution is going to put their own people who are unemployed, who fought for the revolution and sacrificed into these jobs. So that's why the Alawites are fearful. Do they have mixed feelings about that? They do. I think most Alawites realize their government is leading them down a wrong path that is corrupt and now that is growingly brutal. I know in my own family, this is um, <laughs> this is fairly widespread. But there are many cousins who go on Facebook, you know, who are 14 or 15 in Syria, and they're wearing shirts, T-shirts that say Shabihat Assad, which means sort of Assad's special forces. And they're carrying guns on their Facebook page. I mean, they're totally mobilized for this fight. And that's what's scary, is you see this amongst the young generation who don't know much and who've been, in a sense, brainwashed by this regime into believing that it's going to be the end of the world and that they're in a, in a, in a moral struggle to save themselves, save their community, save Assyria. That's why this is likely to be long and bloody. Joshua Landis directs the Middle Eastern Studies program at the University of Oklahoma. We'll link to his blog, Syria Comment, at our website, theworld.org. Joshua, very good to speak with you. Thanks. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. And later, we'll return to Syria musically. Despite the bloodshed around them, Syrians still maintain a fragile sense of normal life. That's still to come on the program. The defense minister in Israel made a rare public disclosure today. Ehud Barak didn't go into specifics, but he said the Israelis are engaged in developing cyber warfare capabilities that are both defensive and offensive. His comments follow revelations of the so-called flame virus that was unleashed on computers in Iran. The world's Matthew Bell has more from Jerusalem. Israeli officials have been saying for some time that they're working hard on cyber defense. Last year, the government set up a national cyber directorate. The prime minister has said Israel aims to be a global cyber superpower. But the defense minister went farther in comments today at a cybersecurity conference at Tel Aviv University. Ehud Barak said Israel takes cybersecurity very seriously. We want to be a worldwide leader in cyber defense. And, he went on to say, Israel can benefit from offensive action as well. This might be the first time such a high-level Israeli official talked so openly about engaging in cyber warfare, but it's hardly a surprise, says Gabriel Wyman of Haifa University. There is certainly evidence that this war is not a future scenario, but it's already taken place. Wyman wrote a book called Terror on the Internet. He says it's a fact that Israel is a high-tech powerhouse. If you combine it with another fact that Israel is challenged by enemies, by terrorism, by wars, by threats from Iran and others, the combination of the two is leading to Israel being more interested than any other nation in developing both defensive and offensive weapons in this new arena. It's far from alone, Wyman points out. Many Western nations, including the U.S., are doing the same thing. And that is scary, says Eugene Kaspersky. 
Kaspersky runs the cybersecurity lab in Moscow that claims to have discovered the flame computer virus. He spoke at the conference in Tel Aviv today and said this particular virus shows how, unlike, say, nuclear weapons, cyber weapons can be all too easily manipulated by bad actors. It's not cyber war. It's cyber terrorism. And I'm afraid it's just the beginning of the game. And very soon, many countries around the globe will learn that. And I'm afraid it will be the end of the world as we know it. Kaspersky said the problem with cyber weapons is that they're easy to build. Many governments have the know-how already, and the ones that don't can employ hackers to do it for them. These weapons also have the potential to inflict massive collateral damage on a global scale, he said. Unleash a virus on one country, and it might just boomerang on the nation that unleashed it. What needs to happen, Kaspersky said, is that governments must get together and figure out how to prevent cyber weapons from being used in the first place. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Online spying is another kind of cyber weapon. This week, the Internet giant Google added a feature to alert users who may be targets of what it calls state-sponsored attackers. Google won't say how it knows a government might be spying on you, but Kim Zetter has an idea what Google is doing. She covers privacy and security issues for Wired magazine. They're monitoring what is normal activity on an account. And so if they see, for example, that um, access to an account is coming from IP addresses that aren't your normal addresses, that's one hint that someone may have gotten into your account. But another way that they would be determining this is if there are known phishing attacks against users, they would see that. So a phishing attack is when an attacker sends an email to a target. It can often look like it's coming from someone you know, someone you trust. And when you open that email, there might be an attachment in there that has malicious code in it, or it might have a link to a website where malicious code downloads to your computer without you knowing. And so if Google is monitoring these situations, they might come across a known phishing attack. And then if they know that it's state-sponsored, they would notify all users who might have received that email. Do you find it strange that Google would focus its efforts on government spying only? I mean, why not spying from other sources? Yeah, I mean, that is curious here because a lot of people get their Gmail accounts hijacked all the time for criminal reasons, simply enemies, personal enemies that might get into it. And it's a a curious choice that they would choose to notify you for one activity, supposedly state-sponsored, and not for any other kind of fraudulent activity. But this has sort of a precedent in it in that in 2010, Google was hacked and there were some activists or people who were active against China and their accounts were breached. And so there has been a lot of sensitivity, Google in particular, uh, against possible hacking from China. And this might be related to that. Has Google said if they plan on addressing other forms of, of spying? No, they haven't. I mean, all we've got from this is a brief blog post. They don't explain how they're going to determine whether something is state-sponsored as opposed to criminal. And they don't uh, indicate whether or not they plan to expand on this to other kinds of fraudulent uh, breaches. What do you think then is the motivation, Google's motivation, for warning subscribers that they're being spied on by a government? Well, I think that there's increased concern, you know, after their hack in 2010, and, you know, a lot of fingers pointed at China in that case. I think there is a concern that activists in oppressive regimes are at particular risk in this case. And I think that, you know, Google kind of wants to be seen as doing its part to protect them. 
Now, for users uh, who may be spied upon, explain what kind of uh, notification they would receive if, in fact, Google thinks they're being spied on by a government. Yeah, it's just a uh, little message that would appear at the top of your account on the the front page. It's black type on a pink background saying that, you know, it's like a a warning saying that they've detected that your account might be targeted by state-sponsored actors. Google has suggested, you know, changing passwords and updating software on your systems to protect against an attack. But that's pretty much all they're doing. I mean, the message is a bit obscure because if I got that on my account, I would be a bit shocked by it. And I think most people will be and probably won't quite know what to do about it. Right. I mean, they, they won't be expecting it. And why wouldn't they think it's somebody trying to scam them? Exactly. That, that was my initial reaction was that this is going to be this is going to be spoofed by attackers. You know, there's an assumption that U.S. government agencies do a fair amount of cyber spying. So in theory, if you're a Google subscriber in Iran, would Google then let you know that the CIA is looking into your stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the big question here is, is Google going to be selective about who it notifies? If it knows, for instance, that some kind of activity is coming from the U.S., would it still notify users? You know, they haven't answered that question. It's also the question of where are they getting their information from? Uh, Google, after it was hacked in 2010, developed a partnership with the NSA. Is it possible that they might know about some of the state-sponsored hacking through intelligence that the NSA provides them? You know, Kim, what I find kind of ironic is that the whole premise of this, as it comes from Google, is we know when the governments are spying on you. So does that mean Google is more powerful ultimately than the CIA or the NSA? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows? Again, if there's a partnership with the NSA and the NSA is providing them with intelligence, that intelligence might simply be limited to, hey, there's a phishing attack going on from this email account. If any of your customers are receiving this email, you might want to let them know. That may be the, the limits of, you know, the intelligence that they're getting. Not much more than that. Kim Zetter of Wired Magazine, thank you very much. You're welcome. Still to come, a personal story of slavery, slave owners, and sugar on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Most countries in Europe are worried sick about debt, unemployment, and not enough economic growth. But one European nation recently decided to cut spending in order to avoid too much growth. That country is Norway, and the reason for its predicament is oil and gas. For decades now, the nation has carefully controlled its energy industry and the huge amount of revenue it generates. The goal was to ensure Norway didn't suffer the same fate as other countries where oil has become a curse. The world's Laura Lynch has our story. In the pretty harbor city of Stavanger on Norway's North Sea coast, the seagulls are screeching high above the town square, adjacent to a sparkling blue fjord. Here it's easy to get a glimpse of the country's hard-scrabble economic past and its booming present-day spectacular wealth. This harbour used to be lined with herring canneries, dozens of them. Piers Croker, the curator of the Norway Canning Museum, says it was the lifeblood of Stavanger. Let's put it like this, 50% of the working population were employed in the canneries, another 15% in the supply industries. Uh, and there was a newspaper headline in 1920, the city that stands on one leg, and that leg was Canning. 
Croker shows me an old canning machine and tells me one employee set a record when he managed to seal a thousand cans a day. That man's grandson still lives here, but the canneries were all gone by the early 1980s. Almost everyone now works in the offshore oil industry that transformed the town. Croker says the change was stunning. There was a guy who'd been in the canning industry for 30 years, and his wages when he retired from the canning industry were less than his 18-year-old daughter beginning in the oil industry. The once sleepy fishing town boasts high-end fashion shops. The harbour is dotted with cranes and offshore oil platforms, either in for maintenance or ready to float out to the North Sea drilling sites. It's evidence of good times. Norway's success, some say, is largely down to one man. Had it not been for the fact that I came to Norway, I probably would have not even done anything with these ideas. Farouk Al-Kasim, in his mid-70s now, moved here with his Norwegian wife and family in the late 1960s from Iraq, where he worked as a geologist for the state oil company. Al-Kasim quickly found work just as one of the world's largest oil fields was discovered off the coast of Norway. The government saw his background and hired him to help devise a strategy for managing the resource and the revenue. Al-Kasim says one of the first things Norway did right was to control its newfound wealth. You don't really benefit at all by allowing oil or, or petroleum revenue to come onto you like a tsunami and flood everything that will completely destroy uh, non-oil sectors of the economy. That's what happened in the Netherlands in the 1970s. It's now known as the Dutch disease. As oil exports boomed, the flood of money into the domestic economy inflated the currency, and that led to price increases. In turn, those increases destroyed exports and led to joblessness and inequality. By contrast, Norway has held on to almost all of the revenue it earns in a giant and ever-growing savings account known as the oil fund. It now holds almost $600 billion and is one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. Peter Osmundsen is a professor of petroleum economics at the University of Stavanger. He says the small amount the government withdraws for spending each year, about 4%, is more than enough. We have been spending a lot of money, so even these 4% is, uh, is a very good increase uh, in public budgets uh, over the last years with a good oil price and uh, high oil production. Uh, we are not starving. <laughs> And the sovereign fund isn't allowed to invest in Norway. That helps avoid inflation and makes non-oil companies more competitive globally. There are challenges. Osmundsen says the global financial crisis has made Norway almost too successful compared to its neighbours. We are having good times, whereas the others are having bad times. So we keep getting pay rises, whereas the other countries are getting pay cuts. So... Um, if this lasts for a number of years, the, the Norwegian competitiveness will, will be reduced in other industries than the oil. So recently, Norway decided to cut its spending from oil income by a billion dollars to slow economic growth. None of this seems to bother Norwegians, even though the fund holds more than $100,000 for each citizen. They seem content to save for the future and continue to pay high taxes. Farouk Al-Kasim isn't surprised by their attitude. He believes one of the reasons the Norwegian approach has worked here is something he noticed when he first arrived more than 40 years ago. 
Al-Qasim believes it was a legacy of the Second World War when Norwegians lived under Nazi occupation. The sense of belonging together, being completely not only dependent on each other, but completely trusting each other. This solidarity uh, in the nation was absolutely unique. Across town from the simple structure that houses the Canning Museum, Stavanger's Oil Museum is a much more modern, sleek building right on the waterfront. The almost spooky echo of a simulated death sounder is one of the exhibits, along with scale models of drilling platforms meant to give an impression of what it's like to drill for oil under the sea. But there's also a giant clock showing the oil revenue climbing second by second, Another wing houses a gourmet restaurant with gourmet prices. Oil has been good to the town. It's now one of the most expensive cities in the world. And it's been good to Norway. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Stavanger. You can see Laura's pictures of Stavanger and its museums at theworld.org. Bluebirds and dragons figure in today's GeoQuiz. There's a story from Wales in the sports pages today. Wales is a mountainous country. Hikers who take on the hilly Welsh countryside are rewarded with plenty of scenic vistas. But I want to draw your attention to a perfectly flat area in the Welsh national capital. It's a soccer pitch, a field where you can see one of the top professional soccer teams in Wales. This team and its players are known as the Bluebirds. And for decades, they've worn blue jerseys with a bluebird emblem on them. But the team has just announced a major rebranding, and now the new jerseys are red, and the logo is a dragon instead. So can you name this team that hails from the Welsh capital? We'll hear more about that rebranding and how fans are reacting when we come back with the answer in a few minutes. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, an Afro-Caribbean writer talks about race and identity in Britain and how exploring her family tree changed her sense of belonging there. I feel much more certain about my place in Britain because I can actually trace my English ancestors back much further than many Caucasian people can. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The murder of a British businessman in China last November is still rocking the top ranks of power there. The wife of a former senior official is accused of the crime. Well, another murder of a British subject in China created similar shockwaves back in 1937. The victim was a teenage schoolgirl. 
No one ever answered for the murder of Pamela Werner, in part because China was on the eve of invasion and war. But British author Paul French finally put the pieces together in his book, Midnight in Peking. He recently took the world's Mary Kay Magstad on a tour of the crime scene. On a cold January morning in 1937, an old man out walking his bird in a cage beside Beijing's old city wall stumbled across a horrific sight, the body of a young woman, mutilated, eviscerated. He ran and got the police. Seventy-five years later, I stand in the same spot with author Paul French. This would have been the scene of a major police investigation beginning with photographers, the ambulance here to take Pamela's body to the autopsy. And of course, Pamela's father, who'd been out all night looking for her, walked around this area, saw this crowd of people, walked through, immediately recognized her blonde hair and the clothes she was wearing and sort of, you know, shouted her name and then just collapsed in a dead faint, basically had a heart attack on the spot. This spot was just a couple hundred yards from Pamela Werner's house. Paul French first heard about the murder as a footnote in a book by leftist American journalist Edgar Snow. Snow had lived next door to Pamela and her adoptive father, a retired British diplomat and China scholar whose wife had died when Pamela was three. Well, I I had read that this English girl had been murdered at, at just the time in January 1937 when Peking was surrounded by the Japanese. And, you know, the tension in the city was amazing. And so everybody was absolutely terrified and knew that the end was coming. And Pamela's death, I think, came to symbolize for the city, both Chinese and foreign, the end of a particular age that was coming, and um, clearly this descent from civilization to barbarism. French's book, Midnight in Peking, is rich in period detail. It tells the story of how 19-year-old Pamela's ventures into the world of dating, dances, and dalliances with older men proved fatal. And it describes how the small foreign community in Beijing didn't have to wait for barbarism to descend, It had a dark side within it, including a group of supposedly respectable Western men who lured and gang-raped young Western women. French says British diplomats tried to stop the murder investigation rather than expose scandal. But Pamela's father, E.T.C. Werner, wouldn't let that happen. French says Werner was a complicated man. The problem with him was, at first, when I started researching it, was he left Pamela alone for a long time. He ended up sending her off to board at Tianjin Grammar School, you know, which was another city, I mean, away from Peking. And he comes across early on, I think, as a very cold, you know, unemotional, typically English, I have to say, father. Right? And I thought, oh, well, he won't be very difficult to write about because I had a cold, unemotional, typically English father, and I probably am a cold, unemotional, typically English father to my son. But as, as the investigation moves on, and then he himself became involved in the investigation, driving it forward... hopefully the reader starts to warm to him and to understand that he has this cold, formal, stiff demeanour, but he really is dedicated to finding who killed his daughter. Which wasn't easy, with both the British and Chinese investigators holding back, and then with the Japanese coming in to occupy Beijing six months after the murder. After that, French says, Werner used his own money to hire detectives and buy evidence off of rickshaw drivers, bartenders, prostitutes, anyone who might have caught a glimpse of his daughter's last hours. He compiled a report to send the British government so it could follow up on the death of a British subject in a foreign land. And just before Pearl Harbor in 1941, when, of course, Britain and America went to war with Japan, uh, he sends it to London. We're talking about a 150-page document. 150 pages of close-typed document with then scribbles in the margins in longhand. And he sends it to London. But it doesn't get to London until 1943. 
because the disruption of the sea lanes and, you know, world war, when it gets to London in 1943, they look at it, they sign it as accepted, and they put it in the files, and they forget about it. And there it sat, until Paul French discovered it during the five years he spent researching this book. On a visit to British government archives, he found, to his astonishment, that what he'd thought was a cold case had in fact been solved by Pamela's father. It's just that no one noticed. When you started working on the book, you were looking at this as an unsolved murder. It was, as far as you knew, an unsolved yeah. murder. Yes, I thought it was an unsolved murder. I thought there were a lot of good characters. I thought a Chinese detective working with a British detective, a little bit of sex, a little bit of opium. Uh, I thought, you know, good locations, great time. You know, China on the cusp of collapse. And I did have this, uh, this idea that if we could just remember Pamela, if we could see her again, if she could come back with us, then the mere act of not forgetting someone would be some sort of justice. Pamela's father never forgot. He stayed in Beijing until a few years after the communists came to power, so he could be close to the graves of his wife and daughter, close to the man he believed murdered his daughter, close to the old French embassy, where Pamela went ice skating on her last evening alive. When she got on her bike that night, supposedly heading home, her friends looked out at the pitch-black streets and said, "'Aren't you afraid to be out there alone?' She replied, "'I've been alone all my life.' and peddled off into the darkness. Only now, 75 years later, does the book Midnight in Peking shed light on what happened next. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. You can see a video of Paul French visiting the sites he mentions in Beijing at theworld.org. Here's another writer, in their own words. Andrea Stewart was born in Barbados. In 1976, when she was a teenager, her family moved to England. She says her new home wasn't especially welcoming to newcomers from the Caribbean, even well-educated, affluent ones like the Stuarts. Although, in a sense, the Stuarts weren't newcomers at all. Three and a half centuries earlier, some of her ancestors had gone from England to settle in Barbados. Over time, those British ancestors mixed with Stuarts' other forebears, Africans who were taken to Barbados to work as slaves in the island's lucrative sugar trade. Stewart writes about her family history in the current issue of Granta magazine. She begins with the story of her earliest known ancestor, George Ashby, who went to Barbados in the 1630s. I knew nothing about him. I didn't know he even existed. And I had no idea that I would be able to trace my family back that far. I first managed to get back to the 18th century. And then through luck and effort, we managed to go back to the 17th century. So there he was, this Englishman who moved along with, you know, millions of other Englishmen to the New World, and all at the same time, which is interesting, because I think the American story of the American settlers has been much talked about in America and very much explored, while the British have kind of forgotten that settlers didn't just go to mainland America. Mm. They went all the way up through South America, through the Caribbean and up to Canada. And so, you know, there's a wide stretch of people who have this story that I have right. um, of an Englishman or another European going over to make the new world and creating their families that are disparate racially, socially and so on. Did you know in Barbados that you came from a mixed background, white and black? 
Yes, I did know mm. that. I would say that that is probably the common denominator for many people. What, what's interesting in your case, Andrea, is that you're the offspring of slave owners as well as those who were enslaved. I mean, I guess yes. that's more common than we realize. But has it been a tough one for you to reconcile? I mean, you found out about this recently since doing this research. Yes, it's been very interesting realizing that you have on the same plantation both my slave owner ancestor and the slave from whom I'm evolved. It was extraordinary sensation to feel that my planter forefather owned my other planter forefather and that they lived together through entire parts of their lives. So it's extraordinary kind of conundrum. Right. I don't know that I've really fully come to terms with that. How do you come to terms with the fact that your your forefather owned your forefather? You know what I mean? It's a very strange sensation because I have to be able to relate to both groups and understand how this extraordinary dark scenario played out. What a situation. <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting. Now, the main reason slaves were brought to Barbados was to work the sugar plantations. Today, how prevalent is sugar in people's lives in Barbados? Has it defined the fortunes, both great and non-existent, of Barbadians and even class? Well, I think traditionally sugar was the crop that made Barbados work as a colony because at the point where the colonists discovered sugar, they realized that they finally found a crop that was lucrative. Before mm. that, there was thought of abandoning it as a kind of failed experiment. And so sugar saved the island. Today, of course, sugar has been eclipsed by tourism and cane sugar has been eclipsed by the production of sugar beet in Europe. Mm. So it's no longer the white gold as it was described in the past. But I think when you go there, you realise how much sugar kind of haunts the island and for the majority of inhabitants of the island who were slaves, I would say that they probably suffered a great deal for sugar. Mm. It was a bitter pill in many ways, rather than a sweet one. So with that personal baggage, the descendant of both slave owners and of slaves, coming from an island that furnished this sugar, which enriched so many British businessmen, your family moves to England in 1976. Many Brits, you write, considered you a foreigner. Did you find yourself getting defensive ever, having to tell people that, in fact, your British roots went back hundreds of years? Well, I think at the time, I kind of bought the story that was prevalent in Britain, which was that the Afro-Caribbean, African colonial people in the country were sort of newcomers mm. and that we were sort of there on sufferance and it was a sort of kind of act of kindness on behalf of the British government. So there was that sense of feeling not quite worthy and not quite belonging. I think the wonderful thing about having written the book and explored this whole complex web of sugar, slavery and settlement... I feel much more certain about my place in Britain because I can actually trace my English ancestors back much further than many Caucasian people can. Right. And also because I realise how profoundly my slave answers suffered and worked in order to enrich the country that I now live in. So it's given me a much stronger, more solid base to live in this country and to negotiate it. How is the history of slavery in the British Empire dealt with generally in England today? It's interesting. I think that in Britain there is still a degree of denial or unwillingness to really confront 
the backstory of British slavery and so on. So there's a sense of it being something that happened sometime a long time ago in some faraway place, rather than realising that the British colonies were at that point... Britain, that they were British territories, and the connection between the colonies and Britain is incredibly intimate. Mm. Not something that happened far away and a long time ago, but something that happened in Britain, in the world of British life, and something that still has repercussions today. And I think that's the thing that, as a culture, Britain hasn't quite come to terms with. Andrew, you write that in Britain, your color enters the room before you do. Um, but you also point out that it's not just color, it's shade as well, shade of color that, yes. some, that, that people in Britain, as well as Barbados, pay attention to. Talk about that and how, for you, that's affected your life. Well, I think in the context of Britain, the shade issue is probably less of interest because in Britain, one is either black or white and there's very little sense of understanding about shades and so on. That is more of an interest or discussion in the context of the Caribbean where people like me who are slightly lighter skinned, are they're clearly linked to a white ancestor and that therefore connects me to a, a past, rather tragically, in fact, that is considered more privileged because what happened during slavery was that mixed-race people had certain privileges associated with their white forebears. And a lot of that lingers in the Caribbean, so that sort of thing matters there. And I think in Britain what happens is a different feeling, which is that there is an assumption in Britain about what all black people's backstory is vis-a-vis class and social privilege and so on. And they assume a backstory for me that has very little to do with my, my real experience. Finally, as to Barbados, you say you visit home every year or so, but you put the word home in quote marks. What does Barbados mean to you now? I think my relationship to Barbados and the Caribbean generally is a sort of um, a curious love affair I have a very sensual and very passionate attachment to the Caribbean, particularly Barbados, where wherever we've lived, we've always returned to this place where I have relatives and so on. It's hard to think of it as home entirely because I haven't lived there for a very long time and I am to a very large degree anglicised and I get teased by my cousins about my accent and, Mm. you know, the things that I say and do. So I know I'm aware of myself as a foreigner there, but... um, It is also simultaneously the place that I feel most happy and at peace. So I suppose it's the closest that I come to as the place to call home. I just know that I am a sort of, like so many people, displaced. Andrea Stewart's article, Sugar in the Blood, is in the current issue of Granta magazine. It's an excerpt from her forthcoming book, which will be out in January. She joined us from London. Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. That was lovely. There's more of us online at theworld.org, and there's more of me on Twitter at Marco Werman. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Back to our geo-quiz and that soccer team in Wales that just got rebranded, much to the chagrin of its fans. The team and the answer to our quiz today is Cardiff City FC. The world's William Troop keeps an eye on all things soccer for us. And William, 
What's the big fuss all about? Well, it's really a story about a small team uh, plays in the uh, second division of English football. So uh, Cardiff City has a long history. They've worn blue for a long time, but they've been running out of money, and they have a new owner from Malaysia, and uh, he's willing to put up the cash to fix uh, the problems that the team is facing. Uh, the only thing is he wants them to wear red, and the reason is that he thinks red is a more auspicious color. Uh, this is a common belief in Asia. He also thinks it would be better to market the team internationally rather than the uh, boring, I guess, he thinks, blue that they had before. Initially, the fans, I gather, were against it, but the team went ahead and changed the shirts and the logo. Anyway, how are fans taking it now? Yeah, that logo before was of a, a bluebird, a, a little cute little bluebird. Now it's a Welsh dragon, also an auspicious right. symbol uh, for the Malaysian owners. Yeah, and, and the, the fans initially, they were like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, you're throwing out our tradition. But apparently, as the team's financial troubles have become well-known, Fan sentiment has changed, and now they seem to be okay with it, at least many fans of Cardiff City. Uh, here's what one uh, fan told the BBC. Well, it's a welcome investment. You know, None of us really want to change into a blue shirt, from a blue shirt to a red shirt. But if it's the price we have to pay to get this investment, then it's a price we'll accept. I'm just relieved that we've got a bit of stability now, and we can progress from here. We've cried out for this for years and years. So, William, what are the chances that any of this color change for the team's jerseys will help the team next year? How's their record? Red might be a more auspicious color, but I think it's really the financial uh, part that is more important. Cardiff City needed millions of dollars invested so that it would avoid bankruptcy, and it had problems paying its taxes as well. That's uh, now all going to be taken care of by the rich new Malaysian owner. But significantly, what the owner is promising also is to invest money in new players. And hopefully that improves the way uh, Cardiff City has been playing. They've been doing pretty good. They almost got uh, promoted to the top tier of English football, the Premier League, this year. But they failed at the last hurdle. Now they can focus on trying to win that promotion next year. And if they do, guess what? they get uh, about $140 million in reward. So that might take care of the problems, and maybe they'll go back to blue next year. Well, no matter what the color change does for Cardiff City FC, sounds like it'll be win-win for Welsh kids with foosball tables. You know, they got the red and blue guys. (laughs) (laughs) The world soccer fanatic William Troop. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Mark. Finally today, we return to our top story, the ongoing violence in Syria. President Bashar al-Assad continues to crack down hard on anyone opposing his regime, and the opposition is increasingly determined to fight back. Witnesses in the country say it's a strange scene in Syria. In homes, for instance, parts of the city are completely destroyed, but in other parts, life seems to go on. I got a taste of that odd contrast right here in Boston the other night. That's Omar Suleiman. In Syria, he's a wedding singer. He'll go to villages to serenade newlyweds. But here in America, he's become an underground star. The American independent record label Sublime Frequencies released some of Suleiman's music. And now the hippest of the hip want to be in his presence. His current string of concert dates pairs Suleiman with the retro psychedelic sounds of the band Dengue Fever. The band's Ethan Holtzman became a fan after seeing an Omar Suleiman show last year. I was like right alongside stage with all these Syrian people and they were just doing a very cool line dance that they do. They all like kind of get together and huddle up and like do the shoulder motion where they bounce up and down and uh, Omar was just rocking them. After Omar Suleiman's double bill in Boston earlier this week, I spoke with him and keyboardist Rizan Saeed. 
in a green room crowded with adoring Syrian Americans, Suleiman told me through an interpreter about his songwriting style. Mostly it's love stories or social events and uh, it's very simple uh, words, simple wording. What I mean by that, they try to make it and keep it easy so even a child, like little child, will understand not just the words, the meaning of the song, what they mean by it. Children, they like their music. Omar Suleiman's lyrics do gravitate toward lighter topics. His main gigs are traditional wedding parties, after all. But not all of his love songs have happy endings. He had a song actually about a girl he loved. And he wrote a song about it. Her love is a very bitter drink. You can't pass it. He's going to wait and he's going to like suffer and be patient and he will take it someday. So he ended up not you know, having anything with that girl. Happy endings or sad endings, Suleiman's songs are known all over Syria. Cassettes of his music are bootlegged with his blessing. Street vendors around Syria sell lots of them, and Suleiman's stature has grown. He also records his music for sale on CD. But not this year, he says. To say psychologically, he just cannot do it. It's, he thinks it's, not, it's wrong that he can do this you know, kind of recording and benefit from it. At the same time, people are dying, and it doesn't matter what side, where from. That's all, you know, his, his big family in Syria, so he does not feel he can do it. Great art often emerges from great pain, but when I asked Omar Suleiman whether he thought great art could emerge from the current Syrian conflict, he basically shrugged. My music always comes from the pain of the people, he said. Maybe someday this conflict will inspire something, but not now, not while the situation is so politically charged. The music and thoughts of Syrian wedding singer Omar Suleiman close our program today. We have a slideshow of his show in Boston at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. I'm
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.